This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Layman Pascal about lots of things, uh, but included are the art of practice, yoga, Zen Cohen practice, relationships helping you grow emotionally, how practice can help us face and work with the chaos that is potentially coming more in the future, practices that use our sensory experience as a conduit for enriching our lives, how to train our minds through reading stuff we don't yet understand, and making visual diagrams of our thinking to help us coordinate our thoughts. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, so welcome Layman Pascal. Um, so we, you, you, you are in, just remind me where you are at the moment. I'm in Thunder Bay, which is on the north shore of Lake Superior in Ontario, Canada. Great. And I, I, I was actually on your uh, Facebook um, page this morning, just checking you out a bit. And so for five generations, you've lived um, in the coastal islands of um, BC, is that? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've only lived in Ontario for a couple of years. I moved out recently, but my mother's family, uh, her great-grandmother moved out to uh, British Columbia, which is where I grew up, on a little island off the coast. Cool. I I live near the coast, too. I can walk to the sea from my house in uh, one hour. Nice. It's, uh, It's nice for me. Lake Superior is the largest lake on the planet. So it's got gulls, it's got tides, it's got driftwood. So for me, it's kind of hard to be away from the ocean, but I've got the next best thing. Otherwise, I might freak out in a landlocked area. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So we, uh, we connected um, a couple of months ago. Um, you, you, I, you invited me to be interviewed on, on your podcast, Sears, uh, YouTube show. Um, and uh, you're retu- kindly returning the favour today, and uh, we've connected around the the integral um, movement and uh, the integral global Facebook page there, which is which is a. I mean, the integral movement is a, is quite a large movement. It's been going on for you know maybe a hundred years, but um, you know the sort of the current most uh, prominent figure in that is Ken Wilber um for for those who don't know um and uh, so we've connected around that kind of work and uh, which is all based around this integrating multiple streams of practice um into into everybody's unique weave and uh, so today you're kindly gonna share your story with uh, how you got into all of this stuff um your successes and failures um and uh and and lots of things like that so let's take it away so when when did you first get into transformative practices and in particular when the moment when it dawned on you that it was an important thing to weave these multiple streams together Mm. well i I had the idea of practice in my head from a really early age. I probably read my first book on yoga and meditation when I was seven or eight. Wow. So I was really interested very early on. 
but I didn't, uh, I didn't put any serious effort into it um, until an interesting thing happened to me in elementary school, which was we had a, a music class and the music teacher was sick and there was this substitute music teacher who had all these creative ideas about what we should do, you know, hold a tone and run around the gymnasium and this kind of stuff. And at the end of the class, he had us lie down and he asked us to put our body to sleep bit by bit, you know, put the top of your head to sleep, put your ears to sleep. I didn't know what he meant. And I didn't know if I put them to sleep, but they all started to tingle. All the bits of my body started to tingle. So I went home. I loved it. I started to do it regularly. And then I found books that had mentioned it. And I, I got the idea that I wanted to be better at that skill. And I would you know, how fast can I make my whole body tingle as if it's all one piece of energy? <laughs> I remember running out into the garden, announcing to my parents that I could do it in under 15 seconds now. Um, so that was probably the first moment where I started to put intentional clarity into doing some kind of interior work. Um, and integrating them with other kinds of practices um, that just developed slowly and gradually over time. I think partly from the integral philosophy, I think partly from my studies of the Gurdjieff work, but more or less, I found myself the kind of person who couldn't put down any part of my humanity. Like I, I just love the human experience. And so I liked my consciousness and my unconsciousness. I like my emotions. I like my thoughts. I like my sexuality. I like my exercise. I like my nature. I, you know, because I liked everything, I was always trying to figure out how to include it rather than exclude it. That, that really resonates with me. Uh, you know, so often, yeah, I, I've always loved all of this stuff. It's just, I just love life, everything. Fascinated by it. And I've come across... A particular school of thought or practice or teaching or something and I'd be like oh this is great this is great and then they'd say but there's this like, these other areas of your life which are complete rubbish and you should never focus on them because that's the path of sin or illusion and and I was just like no you know it's, this was going so well and then I'd encounter that bit and I'd like oh and you get this cognitive dissonance when all these paths they're kind of meeting together but they're all kind of slightly contradicting themselves and each other and leaving bits out and um so did was was that did you experience that kind of difficulty or were you able to sort the wheat from the chaff so to speak i noticed it but i don't think i suffered from it very much i had this kind of um sequential attitude of approaching teachers and teachings and sources of knowledge where I would be initially open and as soon as I started to hear it I would ruthlessly critique it as it came in uh, and then I would start to reopen to it again when I had my own insight about why that might be correct so I was very involved in my own process when I approached any system and so I didn't really have a lot of concern about the system's idea of itself and how it related to other systems. I was more interested in just digging into it, digging into it uh, and looking for like gems. I felt like I was panning for gold all the time. I'm not concerned about the river or the gravel. I'm just looking for those little bits of gold in each one. Yeah. So the fact that that river is different from some other river, that's nothing to me. 
What, what kind of age were you when um, you encountered, say, integral theory? Well, I'd read a couple of Ken Wilber books when I was a teenager, and I didn't care much. They seemed good. I agreed with them in general, but they didn't seem very impressive to me. Uh, I was looking for something different. I was looking for a lot more clarity on specific mystical instruction at that time. But later in my early 20s, I had a, a plateau experience, like a peak experience that lasted for a couple of weeks. Uh, and in that experience, it was like a tremendous amount of extra space was opened up in my awareness. And I'd been wrestling with and analyzing what I thought was the postmodern state of my civilization at the time. So these two things that I had a real critique of postmodernism, what I thought was postmodernism, and I suddenly had this extra space that I was adapting to. And so out of that, I began to look around to fill that space with people who had um, high-powered analyses of the attempt to go beyond postmodernity or pluralism or late modernism or whatever we want to call it. And there, there weren't too many prominent thinkers, right? I started reading a lot of Nietzsche and Heidegger, but I also came across spiral dynamics and I came across integral theory and realized I had been aware of it for years without really paying too much attention. And it, it really comprehensively fleshed out a lot of ideas that I already sort of had. And I realized this was a great language for describing the architecture of how I was now looking at the world. So I just made it a personal point of honor to try to learn their language and then start hooking up with that community to test whether I had that language. And then I dropped out of it. But a few years later, yeah. my, my need for intellectual community got really strong and I went back and sort of hadn't left because I made a lot of great relationships there. Um, well, that peak experience you were mentioning, what brought that on? And could you say a little bit more about the nature of it? Well, um, I hadn't slept much the previous night. I had to get up in the morning and get a bus, go on a long journey. And I was hours early for the bus, it turned out. They came very infrequently. So I'm exhausted, there's nobody around, and I've got hours to wait. And I think maybe I could just get a quick nap on this bus bench. But I couldn't because part of me is alert for that bus. <laughs> mm. And I, I just got increasingly more frustrated with myself because what I wanted to do was let go of my consciousness. And I was also obviously the one who was tensing himself. And it started to stand out to me that this was the problem in my entire life. Everything I was doing was trying to release myself. That was my one goal was to release myself. And yet clearly I was the one who was thwarting the release. And I was just looking at those two things with more and more emotional intensity. And I finally thought, well, I must be the stupidest human being alive, right? I, I only want one thing and I'm the one fucking with that thing. So I, I'm an idiot. And as I contemplated it as my own idiocy, and as I looked more and more at the contradiction between these two behaviors, it sort of melted. And I felt already released in that moment. And there was a sense of, like I said, expanse of space, very stable, good cheer, and a feeling that all of my questions had been answered. And this persisted for several weeks, maybe a month. 
that sounds kind of reminiscent of a lot of Zen story, you know, stories of Zen students that they're having this <clears throat> thing where they're, they're simultaneously trying to let go with a lot of effort at the same time. So they, they've got their foot on the brake and the accelerator or they're, try, they're clinging and trying to let go at the same time. And it drives you mad uh, to the point where you just kind of give up. And then it, it opens up into that place of effortlessness. And I, I love that what you said that um, there are, so we might say that is a sort of collapsing back into your, um, the ground of your being as, as uh, formless awareness, uh, which is totally silent. And in that place, there are, I'm waving because there's a fly <laughs> landing on my head the whole time. Um, That's not just your gesture for formless <laughs> awareness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Queen's wave or something. Um, <clears throat> th there are no questions in that place. I mean, that, that's one of the most uh, striking features uh, and, and that you know the authenticity of that recognition in yourself is there are no questions and no answers. It's just nothing is needed in that kind of intellectual way at all. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a crucial part, a, a crucial event on the path of, um, you know, spiritual practice for anybody that moment. Um, yeah. I like that you mentioned Zen there. I, I spent a good chunk of my thirties uh, working with koan practice. Uh, and I, because of my own personal experiences, I had a sense of, of what I thought would be successful in koan practice, of how to do it, of what would count as having worked with a koan successfully. And it, in every case, it had this particular quality of seeming to suddenly answer all questions, of like cutting off the analytic mind in one gesture without removing it, simply satisfying it and cutting it off. Uh, it was very uh, explosive, beautiful practice, that Zen work. So for, for anyone who doesn't know, Cohen practices uh, this tradition in Zen where you have these impossible questions that you nonetheless have to answer. Um, and there are actually answers to these questions and you progress throughout. I, I did a little bit of it with um, one of Genpo Roshi's senseis uh, a while back via email, sort of a <laughs> modern day version of that. So you, so this is your, um, you know, have got at the moment, you've got a lot of intellectual inquiry going on and you're kind of plugging into this integral community and the integral theory and it's scratching that itch in you uh, for that intellectual rigor and broadness. Um, and you've kind of got these spiritual experiences you're having. Um, were you were there, were you doing any body based practices or psychotherapy or or psychedelics or anything like that at that time? Um, those things are sort of scattered throughout the biographical narrative. Uh, my psychedelic experience was largely um, at the end of my teens and my early twenties. Uh, it was sort of a, a short, very intensive, very intentional period. <laughs> Um, a strategic high dose semi ritualized events. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was teaching yoga at the time. 
So there was that was my physical practice, generally speaking, other than various ongoing experimental approaches to sex, which I think is also a big part of my physical practice. And like I mentioned earlier, the somatic sensing part is a big part of my physical practice. Uh, when I was a kid and started to work on that, you know, you get to the point where you can make a part of you tingle really fast, and then you reach out to see if you can feel a tingle in somebody else or in a plant or in an animal, or maybe the tingles want to send you in a direction. It's very expansive, but also very bodily. And I, I always thought, you know, how much of the spiritual and cultural traditions of humanity basically amounted to people noticing that things tingled, like it's got to be huge. Um, so, uh, in focusing on, uh, all at once, uh, homogenous whole body tingle, I would try to bring the, the total interior sensing of the body into whatever other activity I was doing. So, uh, even, you know, even intellectual stuff, right? I always felt like you have to be really anchored in the body in order to do good thinking. And I'd always liked, Einstein had said that he thinks with his muscles, uh, which always intrigued me. Right? He's weighing it out. He's testing it. He's trying to see what fits where. He's not just running a verbal program. He's trying to crawl his way to an actual answer of some kind. <laughs> but it's, it's quite common for people to be on a phone call uh, and just pacing around and, you know, moving, sitting down, standing up, squatting. I mean, you know, some people are like that. Uh, very kinesthetic people um and i i think that's i like what you said there there's a distinction between sort of subtle physical practices and more um you know overt uh, obvious physical practices so you know the, the yoga someone watches you doing yoga that's obviously a body-based practice to somebody but then someone sees you just sort of sitting down not doing anything they wouldn't know that your subjective experience of that is you are just running this kind of feeling awareness all over your body. And that's a very embodying practice. And it's the kind of the, 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 the core, they, they work together, this kind of uh, <clears throat> more um, gross physical practice. And then this subtle physical practice, they work really nicely together. Absolutely. Um, like my current physical practice, uh, I do, um, Mm, a combination energ energization, physical workout, yoga routine, basically every morning. Um, and I do the Wim Hof stuff. I do some intensive circular breathing and breath holding and cold showers, uh, temperature immersion. Uh, but in all of them, there's, it's as if you're working with prana, whether there's really a prana or not. Uh, and at the same time, I'm always trying to be intellectually and emotionally active while I'm doing that. Because one of the things that uh, I've found over time is that each, each different type of practice works best in combination with some other type of practice. And that my overall goal is to achieve some kind of um, surplus coherent experience that comes from having multiple systems operate harmoniously. You mentioned it, when you were mentioning Zen, about returning to the primal ground of being. And I've done a lot of work with what they call post-metaphysical spirituality. So I'm agnostic about whether it's a return to a primal ground 
or whether it's the production of an additional quality that simply looks like the return to the primal ground. I think either of them could be true. Oh, we, we don't know. I mean, I, I, we're so far from knowing any of that stuff. Um, it, it, because, because awareness is the place from which we do anything, it, it, it's not an object that we can ever see. And it, it doesn't obey those kind of laws. And, and, and the terms, in terms of scientifically studying absolute subjectivity, in that sense is we're so yeah, far we're, away from that and perhaps a it, huge future of study there especially if the majority of our awareness might be unconscious then yeah. we're even farther from knowing what's going on but that's not necessarily a problem because you, you again you know going back to what you're saying that you, none of that stuff really matters when you're having the experience yourself all that you just let go of all of that stuff and whether you're whether this is an epiph- epiphenomenon of meat, complicated meat, or whether it's, you know, becomes before, you know, all of the, this, it, none of that really matters really when you're actually, the experience is what matters. So um, the practice and the experiences operate just fine, regardless of what you believe about the yeah. universe. Well, I suppose the only, you know, talking about it in a sort of scientific investigation and experimental scientific approach perhaps at some point in the future there may be some kind of mechanistic understanding that relates to it which might be able to induce it in other people really easily so you know say that kind of experience can can take uh, many years of meditation practice for it to happen but what if there was some kind of technological device invented which could just uh, repeat uh, every time repeatedly uh, produce that in any person with a flick of a switch. Yeah, that's a very hard one to guess at. And you want to encourage everybody to do every kind of test they can think of with every different kind of hypothesis about it. But at the same time, uh, there's obviously a lot of pragmatic value in the archaic ways of thinking about it that have worked for our species for a long time. And there seems to be something about Uh, intentional effort that runs a lot of this. Now, whether or not you could get the results from an artificial process that you could get from intentional effort is uncertain. Mm. People do seem to be able to have uh, graceful awakening moments or receive transmissions from teachers. Um, Now, whether that really changes them or it only gives them a temporary experience, we're just not sure. It's worth studying. I think in my own life, In my early 20s, a few times uh, under the influence of ketamine, I experienced everything disappearing, but I was still there, you know, aware, even though everything was gone. And it wasn't scary. It was great. It was it was a nice thing. I didn't have the the kind of the the language or the um, teaching structure around that to actually I, you know, translate that into the rest of my life. But, you know, later on, probably when I was about 30, when I had the experience uh, naturally um, for the first time. And because I had re- had had that experience before, um, I kind of knew, I mean, even I knew it was possible. I mean, it's uh, someone might even think it was impossible and that they were on a wild goose chase, if you know what I mean. And I'm not saying this is the 
this is not the goal of all spiritual practice to get into that state, but it, it's a very important part of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I was thinking of there's there's this helmet which does some kind of magnetism thing which can make you have um, feel like you're not inside your own body. It kind of messes with your vestibular proprioceptive sensors. Um, and perhaps there might be some kind of thing that someone invents one day which just completely shuts off your thoughts and bodily sensations but not your awareness and so people could actually like they could get a feel for what that's like and think hmm is this something worth worth pursuing you know at the very least um artificial methods can give you a tremendous sense of confidence by letting you know that it really is possible for you to have these different state experiences hmm. I, I like the first time I ever took a psychedelic was just a massive dose of LSD. And among the other things that happened then was viscerally beholding the face of God. So after that, you know for sure that you can behold the face of God. Whatever that means, whatever it really is, doesn't necessarily matter. You have this confidence that that's not a realm of experience that's cut off from your subjectivity. So I was thinking of that exactly this morning. Uh, you know, I went to very traditional boarding schools in England and we had to go to church two times a week and I never had any mystical experience of any sort in church and I didn't see anyone else have one. And then, you know, I started taking psychedelics when I was a teenager and I would, I would it's like you say, meet, god or the goddess or you know ha actually have an, a mystical experience a spiritual experience and then i go back to church the next week and i'll be like wow there's just nothing happening here but yeah it's it's um the, the thing of having a faith in in something if you've actually had a little bump a little lift up to experience something yourself faith is not an issue anymore because you've already had the experience you're not just kind of blindly following something that somebody's telling you um yeah okay so so then you you've you've just kind of got you i think you're in your early 20s you've just connected with the integral thing I mean, how old are you at the moment you might don't mind me asking um i was blank on this one i don't track <laughs> birthdays very well but i'm told i was born at the beginning of spring in 1976 so 46, from then 40, 44. So it's Earth, like, yeah, yeah tw like 20, 20, 25 years ago. Um, and so what was that? You know, so you had this intellectual curiosity and you, you encountered this community of people, uh, which is a re another really important moment for people when you, you feel like you're on your own with this stuff. And then you suddenly find that there are other people out there thinking your way what was that experience like to connect with a community of people? It was interesting. I mean, like I said, there were sort of two waves of my involvement. At first, it was a bit of a game. I, I wanted to know that I could speak that language, that I was on top of a leading edge thought system. And then I went in, I spent like a month there making sure I was convincing to them <laughs> in their terms, and then left. And it was maybe a year later after that, that I had this tremendous hunger. Like I just needed to be with people who were looking at the same kinds of issues as I was. So immediately, uh, I mean, it is largely an intellectual discussion community, like any verbal online exchange is, but immediately 
uh, it was satisfying simply because my emotional hunger for mutuality was so strong going in. So right away, I felt a, a tremendous relaxation because here were some people um, looking at a lot of the same things I was looking at. Uh, and especially a subset of them that you find you can really talk to from particular angles. Um, and then some of those people began to invite me into other areas where they were working on advanced extensions of it or going to meta theory conferences and things like that. I remember being invited down to uh, what turned out to be the last integral meta theory conference. Uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go because what good is it to me to speak a bunch of my ideas to people, right? <laughs> Like there's a risk of simply being indulgent. Like why, why do I think it's great to be on a stage telling people my ideas? So I'm cautious about that. There has to be another good reason to do it besides that. And the other good reason was to find out if these were my people. Um, and a chunk of them definitely were. And there was a sense, especially when you get into really deep conversations with people who have looked at the structure of this from many different sides and are including so much in that conversation. There's just this beautiful aesthetic exchange, right? A, a sweetness, uh, you know, it's like, it smells like roses and you just feel some huge thing is solved and there's an immense potential here. And it's immeasurably smooth between all of you. There's a place you can get to in that communion that is um, as good as anything you can get to on your own or with a guru. And one thing that, that's uh, important to point out about this integral theory stuff is it's, uh, you know, you're saying it's, there's a lot of uh, writing and talk and intellectual stuff, but, but it's actually psychoactive in the sense that, you know, you come across this theory and it actually transforms the way you see the world and the way you act, the way you relate to people, uh, the way you relate to the natural environment. It's, it's a very powerful thing it's not i mean as you say there are subsets within this group your groups of people and you do get people that just sit and they just talk waffle all day um and and and, and you get people that um you know much more into act you know taking this out and making it real realizing it in the world with with real action real community and um and, and that kind of thing yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's easy to get carried away making extraordinary claims for any particular knowledge system. But I think the psychoactive part uh, pertains mostly to people who come in with a lot of these insight patterns in themselves already emerging. And when they realize that it's mentioned somewhere else, that there's other people working on it, that there's clarifications and extensions of the patterns they're already starting to see about the world, I think those things lock together, this thing coming in from the outside and what's growing inside. Because yeah. you could go into it and just treat it like any other philosophy that might be practical or might be conceptual and not get much out of it. But if you come into it, you've already done half the work yourself, uh, then it really lights up everything you're already growing within yourself. So, then so you say you used to be doing some zen practice uh a bit later on after that is that right uh yeah i think there's 
Um, you know, I used to go through these sort of annual cycles where I would have, uh, um, so for a couple of months, I would have one definite approach to my dominant practice. And then for another couple of months, I'd have this other approach. And then you know, maybe thirds or fourths of the year. And this went on for several years, maybe from when I was 28 to 38. You know, and it was almost like the seasons would change. And there was definitely a Zen Koan season there where I would go all in. I would deal with my Zen friends and teachers. I would be reading Hakuin and Huineng <laughs> and always trying to figure out what's the underlying logical mechanism by which the Satori experience is evoked, reading the koans, <laughs> chewing on them from different directions until you get the explosion. So that was, you know, two or three months of each year for close to a decade. Uh, yeah, that's, that's nice to hear because you know, people think quite often about practice as quite a linear thing. And, um, you know, there is this, this other type of movement, which is a more cyclical movement and, and, and maybe even like a kind of fractal thing with big circles with smaller circles inside it. And I think another thing is that it's really important with practice is to be flexible with what life circumstances throw your way. So, um, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm someone who's really enjoyed sitting meditation practice. Um, and there have been a few times in my life where like I went away one time for six weeks in the middle of winter in a caravan with my family and there was just nowhere to sit down and meditate. Um, and so for those six weeks, my practice shifted to more of the, um, these, you know, short moments repeated many times throughout the day you know and that that to begin with I was kind of grumbling about not being able to sit and do my meditation practice but then I really got this short moments practice really started to take off and then when I started sitting again that experience had fed back in to my sitting practice which which um, got better and uh, with the I do mainly body weight strength training now and I use minimal equipment because I'm a musician. I play a lot of music festivals and stuff like that. I do quite a lot of traveling and I can't take loads of weights with me. You know, when I first started doing strength training, I, I was using weights and it's so impractical to take that stuff with you. Whereas now all I need is something to sling up in some tree bow somewhere and, and I'm away. I mean, I don't even need that. I mean, they, and, and that the, I was kind of, uh, life forced me into that adaptation and i'm really glad it did because I, that's actually completely changed the way i practice but it's important thing to be open to these changes and shifts as they come because otherwise we can get very rigid yeah that's a beautiful insight to have uh partly because we're always in a circumstance and we have to be able to maximize our circumstance not just plow forward dogmatically but also because I think the mechanisms that drive successful practice are built into us and they're sort of embedded in our biology and our history and our character and our landscape. They're almost like we have these instinctive proto skills that we can get clearer on when we see our practice shift into different contexts, right? Like I think a lot about what was I doing as a child before I thought of practice that actually counts as practice? Um, it just was built in and, and 
successful, healthy life circumstances around me allowed it to flourish. But as I take my practices and adapt them to situations and also the situation of arising new insights, I see them shift and I get a more general or universal sense of what are the active principles that are making them work in each case. And the more I see those principles, the more I see that they're, they're the same ones that were making it work when I wasn't even aware I was doing it as a child. Right? I think there's these very basic naturally embedded developmental procedures that are unpacked into each of the different practices. And when you only look at this one practice and try to hold it in one way, uh, you can get a lot of benefit out of that, but you, you end up not seeing these other inter-practice insights. You, you lack this like meta-practice awareness of how to constrain and adapt your practice and what really makes any practice work. What are, what are the things that power any successful practice? And how is it that those are built into us? I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, quite often when people think of taking up different transformative practices, they think of, of, of starting something new. Whereas, you know, maybe the first thing people should do is look at their life already and say, well, what am I already doing? And, and can I actually invest more consciousness, care and love in those areas? Um, you know, say, you know, talking of sex, you know, if, uh, you know, most most adults are having sex of some type, and you know that, that everything can be made in made sacred, um, and it, it, you can look at your sex your sex life and make it deeper, uh, and you know, explore what you're already doing, rather than. You know, plugging in some tight, completely new type of practice into uh, uh, if say if sex might become your subtle energy practice, and you might think, right? Well, I I, I want to do a subtle energy practice. So I'm going to take up uh, qigong or tai chi or something like that. But you might really, really lo- uh, enjoy lovemaking. That might be a big part of your life already. You could say, well, look, I already spend a lot of time having sex why not make that my subtle energy practice perhaps you you only have so much time and energy right so it is very smart to try to fold your practices into things that are already taking up your time rather than try to make extra time you don't necessarily have and you only have so much motivational energy so you've got to tie it to things you really want to do and i think a lot of that involves um trying to be honest with ourselves and the people in our lives about what we think our needs are and not needs in a special sense as opposed to wants necessarily, but the things that give us energy and make our life function. I heard a great interview with uh, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian about his life of transcendental meditation practice. And I do a, a similar, I do a mantra practice every morning, but the interviewer asked him if he'd had any interesting mystical experiences. And he said, no, I don't think about that. It's just that if I don't do it, I feel tired and awful later in the day. Right. And so it's very practical, right? If a person or a person and their partner work out this thing where if they don't, if they don't bring a certain tempo and frequency and intentionality and emotional frame to their sexuality, turns out they don't feel as good later in the week. Or, right, just or if I don't do my fasting, I end up feeling 
bloated and sluggish in a couple of days, or if I don't do my physical workout, I feel worse. If I don't try to solve mental problems, I feel dull inside. So there's this sense in which if we, if we try to take an accounting of our needs, what we need in order to feel optimal, we end up seeing these things that we, we do want to do and are already working on. We're just maybe not bringing enough intelligence and intentionality and finesse to it. And that, that's maybe where learning some kind of theory, theory to do with that. So, you know, if we're going back to sex, you might look, look into Taoist sex, sexual practices or, um, you know, some of the tantric sex um, work or, you know, it's, it, you, you need some help, really. I mean, it's, it, you don't need to reinvent the wheel yourself. Um, so there, there are people that have, have gone really deep into this that you can start from where they are taking you yeah it's, uh, in my experience there's always this interesting mixture of like where you draw the sources of your practice from and some of it depending on the kind of person you are is out of yourself out of your own pondering out of your unexpected insights some of it is things you work out in conversations with peers lovers friends some of it is directly from teachers and teachings who've already been working on this a lot and some of it's from um, finding information sources that you think are very rich and just digging into them right? to me rereading complicated things is a very important intellectual practice it was one of the things that helped me get into the integral community but also all of my favorite philosophy and science i orient toward things where there's clearly a lot of stuff there I don't understand. And I think if, you, if you're satisfied to read and watch things where you quickly get what they're talking about, it's kind of a waste of your time. It's junk food. If you go, wow, there's so much here I don't get. I can tell the person saying this even knows more than they're saying, and I don't even know what they're saying, right? Go back to it. Pick that book up 10 times rather than read 10 new books dig into it because you're going to find patterns of connection there that when you recognize them lead you down new paths or old paths in new ways. Yeah. That, um, I like what you were saying about being open to information sources coming in from all of these different, via these different means, because <clears throat> you know what, what quite a lot of this sort of philosophy or approach to life that you and I both enjoy is this um, kind of progressive impulse of, of breaking free of the limitations of the traditional approaches whilst, maintain, whilst maintaining all of the conserving the structures that they've built, which are truly beneficial um, and you know, leaving behind that kind of rigidity which comes with with a lot of those tradition that traditional approach, and that there is only one conduit of information in a lot of those circumstances, and you're encouraged to just like a horse with blinkers on, to just just turn off all other input from other areas, and you know there's something to be said for that. There's a potency which comes with that kind of single-minded focus, but at the same time, it's so prone to, um, 
it's, it's, it's the opposite of biodiversity. It's, it's like plants. It's like a monocrop of plants. It, that could, so, that's just a sitting duck for some disease to come and wipe it out. You know, that, does that make sense? Absolutely. I think uh, increasingly we need to be informed by successful biological models, not the least because our civilization is running off the rails relative to our ecology. Right, so we need to really individually and collectively internalize organic patterns into our human patterns. I think that's hugely important. Now, there is something to be said for focus, for sticking with a practice to get all of its depth, and for not being a, a kind of dilettante who's superficially attracted to every new exciting thing that pops up. Yeah, you don't want to be shiny, shiny stuff. Yeah, uh, they say with Donald Trump, you distract him by putting something shiny, you know, <laughs> exactly. it's, a, it's a subhuman thing to just get turned on by whatever comes by, <laughs> because so much of the life of practice is about clarity and intentionality and the effort of staying with something. However, obviously, uh, human beings who give you traditions and practices are not necessarily the most psychologically well-rounded people. And every group is going to try to constrain people to focus on its thing. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, uh, fragility where people feel like if you experiment and explore, it's all the value is going to be lost. In my mind, that means the value wasn't really there to begin with, right? If you think people looking around and trying other things is going to damage it, then it's weak. That's, that, 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 is, that is so important to point out. That's true. It, yeah, it's like um, when people worry about blaspheming, you know, against God or something. We, it's, well, surely if God's uh, almighty, you shouldn't really, you know, why are you worrying about people blaspheming? <laughs> it's kind of a similar, similar kind of mentality. Yeah, I think about it in terms of human relationships as well. I mean, there's uh, if you're in a relationship where you think this is this is kind of like a marriage, this is something I want to commit to on purpose and work forward with, um, that's great. But that's not necessarily the first one you get engaged to. Or, you know, if you have an arranged marriage, that might not be the person you want. You might go through very naturally a number of different kinds of relationships, each of which has a huge amount of potential until you figure yourself out and end up with somebody and you think, you know what? I don't have to force this. I'm actually committed here. This is interesting, right? That the commitment doesn't have to be a top down idea that you ought to commit. It can be something you discover that you're capable of in a particular context. And that doesn't mean the other ones you worked on before weren't valuable, but you only needed them for a while. Now you're in a different place. Like, I don't do a lot of Zen koan practice anymore, right? If that had been one of my girlfriends, we had a great time. It was really valuable. And I still love her and I carry a lot of that with me. But that's not who I'm with now, so to speak. Hmm. So we've, uh, one area we haven't touched on yet is um, some, you know, kind of psychotherapeutic, uh, emotional uh, work. Emotion is interesting. In some ways, I feel like I'm primarily an emotional being, although people who read uh, something I wrote and recognize that it has a lot of big words in it wouldn't necessarily guess that up front. 
when I was a kid, um, I was living in the Bahamas and I, I fell down and scraped up my leg and it was all bloody and I, I felt like I was going to cry and I did this internal move. I clamped down and I was so happy that I'd, I'd been able to conquer this automatic reaction. But I didn't cry again for 20 years after that. <laughs> and so I had to relearn it on purpose. That was a very interesting procedure. It took place within the you know, a chemical chamber of relationship. I had to figure out what I wanted to do and how much of emotional explosions were valuable and how much were they destructive and you know, when is it natural and smooth and when do you burn yourself out? So I, I went through a very intentional emotional reawakening, an attempt to throw myself into that on purpose. And after that, I had to reevaluate the results and look for emotional practices. And some of those were psychotherapeutic or biopsychotherapeutic. I was very interested in bioenergetics and Reiki and work and Rolfing and things like that, where your unconscious contents needed to be made conscious, but in collaboration with learning to breathe properly, learning to move freely, things like that. So just um, for people that might not yeah. know what those practices are, but, uh, uh, from my understanding of it, you do a, a, something with your body and that accesses an emotion which is up to that point been inaccessible to you. Is that? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, part of it is feeling into your body. Part of it is breathing more. So you're kind of increasing the energy that would fuel the emotion. Uh, part of it is learning to sense where you're uh, chronically tense in your body right, where these patterns of armor are constricting the electrical stimulation flows that go along with the emotion, right? So you might think, yes, I feel happy, but if you can't fully take a breath of air or if you're tight in your neck all the time, then that happiness never expands to its full range because the physiological blocks on the electrical excitement also inhibit the experience of the feeling. So you're trying to set your musculature free and your breathing free and sense into your body at the same time that you're looking for uh, unprocessed emotional content. Talking of uh, happiness, I feel like a lot of adults uh, feel like they need to save face and that stops them from letting that joy extend to the extent you're talking about. I've got young children, um, they're four and six, they do happy in a way that I don't see most adults do. And I know also that most adults can do that because I've been in situations where everybody's given each other a green light to just let their happiness expand to that level. But we're so um, concerned with saving face that we, we find it very difficult to, to expand that far. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the people who grow up in the older cultures, are a little bit more aware of that, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, American I'm English. <laughs> are not as clear, but I think uh, Japanese and the English are, are much more aware of the risk posed to them by their uh, class structure and self-inhibition and things like that. Mm. Uh, personally, where was I going to go with that? I think there's two really important kinds of emotional intensities that people minimize. One of them is joy, ecstasy, happiness. 
right? And it doesn't matter if you get something that you wanted. If you can't experience the satisfaction of getting something you wanted, then it's no good. You didn't really get the thing you wanted. What you wanted was to experience satisfaction, not to have the thing that technically satisfied you. So if we set up systems where people can sort of write down what they wanted and work toward that goal and get that goal, that's insufficient because they have to be able to experience that goal or it was never worth it. So that's on the one mm. side. The other feeling that they have trouble with is failure. We don't like to try things that we're not good at, right? We refuse the growth mindset because we want to stick to what we're good at. We don't like to feel remorse, which I think is one of the most important things to work on as a practice, is where did I screw up? How am I a failure? It, it, it's true. I did something wrong under those conditions. There's a sense of failure to work with, and we don't like that. We repel. We evade the sense of failure, right? We know our politicians and businessmen don't do a serious soul searching after they screw up. They just go back to doing what they normally do, and all of us do that, right? So we reject our peak positive experiences, and we also reject our emotions of failure. And both of those really hold back our development, I think. Yeah, I um, uh, taught the drums for uh, many years in school. And um, you know, I was talking to this actually my last guest, that the, the good students were the ones that were not ashamed of making mistakes and, and doing it wrong. Um, you know, whether that has to do with uh, whatever in their upbringing, um, secure attachment and, and all of those kind of things, they, they felt quite happy to, to, the, uh, to do that. And, and, and they made progress so much faster than the people that couldn't bear to make a mistake ever. I mean, if you, if you, if you can't bear to make a mistake, that literally clamps down any progress at all in anything. Um, but we you know one of the messages we get from our modern culture and society is that people love the the high production value stuff uh things that are very polished and smooth like if you listen to you know music went through a big phase of being having this very very squeaky clean clear uh, clear production and then eventually people found that was a bit soulless and people started to make music again on some of this old equipment and use analog synths and, um, you know, and try and make music that sounded like it had been recorded in the sixties because it had that kind of slight warmth and imperfectness around it. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's a difficult to counteract that force of things having to be perfect straight away, you know? Um, it's, it's something to keep 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 your eyes on. Uh, Absolutely, and it's uh, you know when I was in school, I got a lot of what I now regard as a very limiting, destructive reinforcement, which is I was constantly rewarded for things I was already good at because the things I was already good at happened to be what they were looking for. Right? I was really good at sports. I was really good at math. I was really good at English. Uh, was, I had an excellent memory. So I got constant pats on the head for just being the way I was, which turns out to be a form of sabotage. You should get pats on the head for trying to do things you're not good at. That's what growth consists of. And it was always very sad to see other kids not getting pats on the head for the things they were good at 
But now I realize I shouldn't have been getting those pats. That was kind of abusive in a subtle way. And I think it goes way back in the culture. Like, I don't think it's, it's a byproduct of contemporary technology. I think all of the grand empires of the past tended to ossify around uh, a very pristine conformist ideal. And that we're now just starting to come out of that with some kind of consciousness that we've got things like, you know, chaos science and complexity dynamics and a new appreciation of the microstructure of biological systems. We're seeing these multi-tentacled, multi-directional, symbiotic, uh, rugged systems and how efficient they are and how resilient they are. And we're seeing that our attempt to set up clean, regular dogmatic systems fails again and again fails like 1950s hospital approaches to birth, you know, like just too locked down to survive any waves of chaos that hit us and also inhibiting our general full spectrum multidimensional humanity. And that's especially important as we're seeing now in the world, mass waves of chaos and ambiguity are hitting us. And I don't think that's going to stop. I think that's going to keep going. And in order to deal with that, you need organic resilience on the one hand and personal practices to set you up to be able to handle that on the other. Yeah, so this, this uh, multidisciplinary approach to practice, one of the outcomes of that is a flexibility um, you know, and an ability to adapt to conditions as they change. You know, and, um, and it's... It's, it's quite a new approach to practices. You know, it's, it's not traditional uh, and it's not necessarily this modern thing. And it's, it's kind of what you might call postmodern and post-postmodern, what comes next. But it's, it, is the, it is quite new and people do find it a little bit threatening. But it's the times really call for it. And, and I think the results of doing this kind of practice uh, was you, you, was some of the things you said earlier made me think of this, that if you just do this, do practices across this spectrum of body, heart, mind and spirit, you don't really know what the result is going to be. Uh, you're not aiming towards some clearly defined result. You just know that there's a good chance your life's going to be better um, and the life for others around you is going to be better too. Um, so, you know, you just, you, you do these practices and then you see what, you know, you're open to what actually happens. It's not, it's not this kind of clearly defined path. Um, you know, some of the more traditional approaches to these kind of practices, they have this very clear path. And, you know, the, the paths are still relevant because if you take the meditation path, for example, you start out chasing the meditation experience, you know, then you have this experience of the formless awareness or whatever, and then, then the next thing is about how do you live with that as, as, a, as an integrated part of your identity? And what does that mean with your relationship with other people in the world? And that's still a map that exists. It's like a bit like those Zen ox herding pictures. Um, but, you know, uh, there are new, new things happening in unexpected... It's, it's, they're, they're, I think we've always got to keep an, an eye out for innovation and, and, and even new things, new 
stages of practice emerging and even new states of consciousness. I mean, if you think about some of the experiments that are being done with all of these psychedelic chemicals in labs in China and stuff, you know, well, I was talking to a guest a couple of weeks ago about 5-MeO-DMT. That was only discovered in the 1980s and it's the most potent psychedelic. It's very unlike all of the other ones. It doesn't have a tradition around it. You know, what other states of consciousness might arise through some of these other new types of practice or even some pharmacological interventions like like drugs and what's that going to do it's um it's amazingly open-ended and we have to take that seriously and emotionally and morally assimilate the fact that it's open-ended i think when there's if you have an old-fashioned idea of the earth as flat then you can imagine a, a hierarchy of growth that just goes straight up like a ladder. But as soon as you realize the earth is actually spherical, then those ladders go up in every direction, right? And if I go up five rings and my friend in China goes up five rings, he's going in the opposite direction from me. We're going in opposite directions, but we've achieved the same relative development. So there's, there's whole higher levels of thinking which show us how uh, open-ended how multifarious this can be that the next person's practice could be totally bizarre as far as you're concerned and yet they might attain as much as you attained or more in a different direction so the altitude and directionality have to be sort of unpacked and teased apart as variables how how do you see these different strands of practice you do feeding into each other and potentiating each other you know for example you know how might psychotherapy help your yoga or how does your wim hof method in, uh, how does that affect your meditation practice or your relationships do you know you see what i'm getting at yeah this? i would i would address that from two directions and the first one is a little bit about just health and needs which is to say if you've got a hole doesn't matter where in the boat the hole is, the water is going to get in. So you have to shore up any areas that are insufficient, right? If you're, if you're not getting the physical nutrient you need from your food or you're getting too much of some anti-nutrient, that's going to screw with everything else you want to do. Likewise, if you're not getting adequate intellectual stimulation or if you're not really having the emotional exchanges you need, that's going to screw with everything else. So there's a basic level of stabilization, which requires all the legs of the table to be functioning, at least at, to some minimum degree. Secondly, I think of these ladders or tentacles in different directions as being essentially the result of convergence and integration of practices just in its very nature. I'm almost tempted to define spirit as something that is created or emerges to us through balanced convergence. That when the more systems in ourselves or between ourselves that we bring together in relative balance, the more likely we are to create a, a greater harmony, an overtone that's more than the sum of its parts. And I think that extra is the engine that fuels our growth and provides us with transcendental experiences. 
So it, it's, it's convergence. The growth part is all convergence, even though you have to have that basic stabilization and you have to know the parts you need to stabilize, which is where a good map comes in. That, that's, that's interesting because that kind of um, plugs into this idea of effortlessness and effort that once you align things, then the, the, the nature's own force pours through it and you know so you know when you when you kind of make some kind of alignment happen through uh doing these practices that's what you you just open yourself up to see what nature's going to pour through there um and uh yeah yeah i think about the metaphor of riding a bicycle a lot because in a way you know, to be balanced on the bicycle, when you're trying to learn to ride at first, you could fall to the left or you could fall to the right. And there's a sweet spot where you're equally falling to the left and falling to the right. And that's where you have to ride forward from. But once you get that and you start to move forward, then momentum becomes your ally. Mm. And you're not just not falling left or right. You're simultaneously falling left and right and experiencing a sensation of forward motion and something like weightless flying. So falling left and right, that's our heart practice, our mind practice, our left brain, our right brain, our personal, our mutual. If, we're, if it's a balanced work in these multiple directions, you don't just get balance, you get some kind of forward motion and some kind of sense of operating at an additional almost effortless level i think this this raises another really important thing to to remember about pr practice is this is more about the art of practice or mastery or something like that right so it's not what we're talking about now is not focusing on the specifics of i do this kind of yoga at six in the morning and you know I, I i do my intermittent fasting and this is what i have this many carbs and this much protein you know that's the details and you know you can get lost in the details and forget this kind of art the art of practice the mastery of it um which is quite subtle stuff to talk about and and it's <laughs> um uh, and a bit, but quite often forgot, you know, this sort of modernist uh, achieving uh, mindset. It's like you know, it, you're quantifying everything and and forgetting the, the the what's the quality of of this practice. You know, it's important to bring those two things together. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be you can't just have a superficial, complete uh, circle graph of all the parts of your life and a lot the right amount of time. It's, you know, some of that has to come into play, but depth and quality and looking at these subtle areas where you understand and unpack the basic skills that are involved, I think that's essential. Uh, it's like spending time with people in your life that you care about, right? You think, well, maybe I need to be spending more time with my kids or my wife or my uncle or whatever, but it's not really about the amount of time. You can go and spend six hours there and still come away with that same unresolved feeling unless that was good time, unless you did something together, unless you got into that groove together where you do something interesting and are mutually resonant. So it's always about this shift from just the activity types into this qualitative discernment. Hmm. So if, so I'm just thinking of is somebody listening to this who 
you know, they want to take up this kind of practice. Um, you know, they, they perhaps they came across integral theory or, you know, metamodism or, you know, one of these in, in inlets into this type of uh, syncretic thinking. Um, how, what would say, if, if they, let's just say they, they wanted to do some work around, um, you know, psychotherapy, for example. I mean, we actually, let's just look at all four of these practices. Yeah. So let's just start with a heart. Let's say they, they kind of got to a point where they realized I've been out of touch with my heart. Uh, I need to, this is one of the holes in my boat. Um, what would you, what advice would you give to someone like that? at that stage for them? Um, well, the kinds of suggestions for emotional practice that I would make in general, um, first of all, there's a sort of developmental approach. I call it second order emotions. If you're familiar with Robert Keegan's, uh, the subject of one stage becomes the object of the subject of the next stage. That's mostly cognitive, but there's an emotional correlate, right? You can, have an emotion about your emotions, just like you can have an awareness of your awareness. So if you have a feeling, you can also ask yourself, what feeling do I have about that feeling? And it's almost always a wiser, more transcendental feeling. Right? You think, well, I'm feeling a little worried. You know, well, how do you feel about feeling worried? Well, I feel like it's kind of stupid to feel worried and that maybe I should be more relaxed. Right? So a feeling about a feeling, there's a process of growth there where you can get out of the one you're trapped in and get a broader emotional perspective. I think that's very useful. I think one of the most practical things is simply to take seriously the concerns of the people in your life. Uh, if this, as long as they're being respectful and not tirading and stuff at you, if they say to you, look, I want you to say this, or you never say this, or you never do this. And, you know, try to admit it, try to admit things to the people you care about the most, as long as you can trust them. Um, they're very often poking at the very thing emotionally that you need to release for your own well-being. Yeah, that that's um, you know because sometimes so often people would think, okay, I need to do something something around this emotional work. They start looking through the directory for psychotherapists, see that they charge a hundred dollars an hour or whatever it is. You know, they think yikes. But you can start through just working the people that you are in relationship with every day can be your teachers and in that sense and help you. Um, it's like you say, just take seriously what people are saying. Like, you know, even if just play the game to start with. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's also, um, I mean, integral has this attempt to summarize a lot of um, sort of pop spirituality systems of uh, emotional processing called this three two one method where you sort of uh, you know you th you find something that's irritating you and then you try to dialogue with it and then you try to make it be about yourself and there's a lot of variations of this uh, one of the most interesting things to do is just let yourself really judge somebody or something in the world until you're really comfortable with what your judgment is and then see if that judgment applies to you let it apply to you try to take the reverse because a lot of the problems where psychotherapy and emotion come together is that the psychotherapeutic problem is that we've reversed or inverted our approach to the emotion. Right? One of the classic things, one of the reasons integral meta theory originally started saying you need to do therapy in addition to meditation 
is that the the energies and the emotions you're working with in your meditation might turn out to be the reverse of the ones you're having. I think we talked about that in our mm. discussion before. Retrojection is this common idea that you imagine you're having the reaction to a thing that's coming at you when really the emotion you're having is the one that you're imagining is coming at you. Yeah, so you so, feel fear when you think yeah. you're being aggressed against and you don't notice that you're actually feeling aggressive. So you need to be able to flip your emotions over and see if the one you're really having might be the opposite of the one you feel like you're having. Hmm. Okay, so uh, what about a physical practice, uh, a body-based practice? And, you know, let's just say, yeah, somebody wanted to develop that area of themselves. There's things you can do yourself, but there's also ways you can find legitimate tuition that in this that that's not going to screw you up uh let me just say one more thing about emotion which Mm, is intentionality right and the buddhists are very good about uh inculcating the intentional practice of positive emotional states and we, we know that our brains have evolved to be extra good at negative emotional states right so if you have a positive feeling They say you have to hold it three times as long or three times as intensely just to balance out a negative one. Yeah. Because we're we're built to worry about the tiger, not to feel good, so to speak. So you have to intentionally focus on and amplify the reasons for your positive emotions just so that you don't slip into depression. Yeah. But I, I think there's a larger pattern there, which is anytime you try to intentionally hold an emotion, even if it's a negative emotion, you end up merging your, your whole system and your intentional intelligence with that feeling, right? If you're feeling fear and you think, all right, I'm going to feel fear. Let's do this. Let's hold this fear feeling and explore it. it. It starts to change. You start to become smarter about that emotion at the moment you intentionally try to hold it and get into it. Now, physical practices. Um, oh, just uh, on, on yeah. that, uh, Rick Hansen has a good practice called taking in the good. And uh, he's a <clears throat> neurodharma is his thing. So he's, he's you know neuroscience, but with combined with Buddhism. And he says that when something, when you're having a good experience, make sure you actually let that land, because yeah. we're we're hardwired to pay more attention to negative things. And if you don't take in the good, you're you're not getting nourished on that on that level. There's a lot of sentimental nonsense around gratitude. But at the same time, you have to teach yourself to experience the depth of things that are working when they're working. Uh, The science fiction author Kurt Vonnegut used to say, if this isn't good, I don't know what is, right? If, If something nice is happening, say that something nice is happening. Mentally go over the parts of it that make it so nice and tell yourself, well, isn't this so nice? Like it doesn't have to be, you know, a hallmark idea of, I'm trying to experience gratitude and appreciation because I've heard those are positive emotions. It's just that if you're actually getting something that's working for you, make that go deeper, make that go longer, make that stronger. Even if it's just you're thirsty and you get a drink of water. Wow. What a great thing. It's almost worth having been born on this planet just to be able to get a glass of water when you're thirsty. It's amazing. That, that goes back to what we were saying. Um, about rather than trying to plug something new in so if this gratitude practice of 
you know say you know you uh you're forcing yourself to be gra- to have gratitude for something uh actually we're talking about pulling new practices in uh, rather than just looking at what you're already doing um because it's all it, it, with this gratitude stuff there are things all the time little things and it's just like noticing that and actually uh on its own terms you don't even need to do it you know as you say when you're thirsty a glass of water is really good just notice that it's really good you know you don't have to stand at the end of the day and say thank you for all my food and my water and you know it, that that's kind of flat and has no juice to it yeah so physical um you know mobility and tone i think are the minimum things if you want to work up to uh, you know headstands and you know a musculature and things like that if you want to be able to run uh those are interesting but those are more like specializations i think the minimum thing we need is that all of our parts need to be able to move freely and that our general system has to have a good tone right your your muscles have to be able to pull on each other properly and that's where you know the right kind of yoga or even just when you do your activities try to bring mindfulness to them and try to um try to do muscle exercise in your daily routines take the opportunity to carry heavy grocery bags to walk up an extra flight of stairs to carry a piece of wood something like that to me that's a beautiful thing is how often we turn down the opportunity to do some normal functional exercise Taking the elevator. I've heard people make fun of this thing where a a guy gets out of his limousine and he has somebody take his bags to his room and then he takes the elevator up to the floor with the gym and then he works out in the gym. Yeah. But he won't lift his bags and he won't walk up the stairs. Yeah. 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 Uh, So there's that. For me, a lot of it is, you know, I, I love over time the yoga exercises I've come to prefer are ones where I either move a part of my body independently of the other parts or whether I just hold a general exercise that works as many muscle systems as possible. You know, planks are amazing, <laughs> right? A, a good plank, um, if you hold it long enough and you, f- you let every part of yourself do the work, then they all get exercised and they all pull on each other. And it allows your system to learn to hold itself together rather than I'm doing this exercise to try to get this result. Mm. So general functionality and tone and mobility, uh, to me, that's tremendously important. As well as (coughs) you've got to relax, right? You've got to take the time to do things that let your body down. You've got to take a massage if you can get a massage or just lay down in the grass in the sun or something like that. Let yourself relax. And for me, that's always been a struggle. Uh, when I lived on the coast, I had a job with this <coughs> great health program. So I would go to this spa and I would try a different service every time. You get the cups, you get the needles, you get the massage, you get the energy work. But it's really hard for me to do that. I'm very active by nature. And receiving can be difficult for me. I have to fight myself. I think and that's this, a fight yeah. that's worth taking up, right? You think you get a little rob and you think, well, that's enough. That's enough. I, I need to become active now. And you say, no, I'm going to use my active nature 
to fight myself and hold myself here. Even if that's all I can do, I'm just going to stay the hour. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of things and people in the world that are trying to give things to our bodies that we're rejecting. Yeah. And so being vigilant about that and constraining our reactions so that we can actually receive what our body needs. That's hugely important. That's, um, <clears throat> you know, where relationships can really help. My, my wife is much, much better. I mean, I'm more like you, that kind of <clears throat> active doing, uh, she's the one that, that, that books us the spa sessions, you know, <clears throat> and, uh, I'm so grateful. She has taught me so much about that kind of, uh, more, uh, self-care and that that uh, really opening up to massage and and saunas and the spa thing for sure and uh, it's really been an education for me and I and if I wasn't in a relationship uh, you know I, I, I wouldn't do that and I'd miss that because I wouldn't I you know it goes back to what we we're saying about taking taking people's what pe taking pe other people seriously what they say you know, right? Not just kind of single-mindedly having your own focus. You know, it's like being open in that way is really key. Yeah. I personally, I, I think you're a fool if you don't do a breathing exercise every day of some kind. And you have to be cautious with that a little bit because you get carried away adapting to an artificial breath rhythm. Uh, you could throw your system cycles out of whack. Uh, so you have to be, you know, you do it for short intensive sessions or you do a gentle one. Uh, but really getting that extra oxygen and having it come into your body in a way that your body can absorb, which means it has to be mixed with the right amount of carbon dioxide, those sorts of things. I think that's really important for boosting the immune system, for giving all of our organs the not only the oxygen chemistry, but also the electrical excitement that our cells need in order to thrive. Right. Regardless of what a person might believe about prana or chi, it's obvious that when you take a breath of air, there's a stimulation associated with that as well. And trying to increase the cellular excitement that comes along with breathing is immensely important. It's at the root of all those old yoga practices about pranayama. So that's really important to me personally. So perhaps we could we could move on to, uh, you know, a spirit a spiritual practice. Um, you know, some somebody is <clears throat> wanting to develop that area. You know, they might they might be already doing things for their body, heart, and mind, but they think the spirit's the thing that's letting me down. Uh, that's that's a hole in my bucket. Spirit's an interesting one because we typically conceive it as an additional force or entity outside of ourselves or as a totality of all of existence. And those are great ways to think about it. But uh, there's also a way of thinking about it where it, it basically is the harmonized combining of your other practices. But if you are, if you really put time into paying attention to or making efforts in heart, mind, and body simultaneously and with equal intensity, You'll find that after a while, they sort of blend together. And that blending gives you a feeling of diffuse, intensified beingness. And that feeling is something you can relate to, integrally speaking, through different lenses. It might seem like a higher energy. It might seem like a more intense version of yourself. 
it might seem like the presence of another entity of some kind. But I think once you, once you encounter that, however you've encountered it, by grace or by exercise, once it shows up, you try to relate to it somehow, right? And whether it's heart, mind, and body, or seven chakras, or left and right, or all four quadrants of the integral map, when you've brought many things together in balance, and they've started to work really well, and you get this other feeling of balance, of excess coherence, then, then your job, your spirit job, is to try to bring that into your life. You can question it. You can express yourself to it. You can try to do things while maintaining it. But you're, you're trying to bring it into the world somehow, bring it into your actions. Uh, judge things according to the overflow that it's presenting to you. That might be a little bit abstract, I know, but I, I have this. Well, my, but, my uh, sense is integration, mm -hmm. if properly accomplished, leads to this extra. Sure. This extra well, can be like another thing. And then as soon as it's there, you have to work with it somehow. And that's your spirit life. Yeah. And one, one you know, in a more concrete way, one way someone might build up a relationship with that side of their identity is through doing meditation, uh, f feeling that experience you're talking about, that, that feeling. Um, and just over time, building up a relationship with that side of, of, of yourself like you would build up a relationship with any, with a, with a person, you know, yeah. or it's, it's kind of having mutuality with yourself. Well, let me tell you what I do each day in terms of meditation hmm. in the morning. I do what I call a subtle mantra meditation until I get to the point where uh, all of my thinking and emotional concerns vanish and I'm absorbed into uh, an exquisite sense of buzzing that seems centered around the head. And then I try to get up and bring it into the body. And to me, that's an important way to start the day because it's really relaxing and orienting and puts my brain back together after having let sleep do whatever sleep does to it. So that's my morning. In the afternoon, I do an inquiry practice of some kind. And usually it's either I'm noticing that I'm fixating on the absence of flow in some area of my life and shifting at every moment of noticing to the fact that I do know what flow looks like in that part of my life. So it's a, a detection, a recognition, and a release wherever my attention goes. And as you continually release areas, it starts to build up into more and more exalted states. The other one I do in the afternoon is um, I observe the perversity of my attempt to create myself as a contracted separative entity, right? So you, you, I just sit there and I'm like, well, how did I get this feeling of I'm an isolated being from other people or the universe? It's a very foolish feeling, but it's almost like I'm rewarding myself for getting it. I'm actively exploiting every area of life to get this feeling of being separate. And maybe, you know, if you're having a relationship spat or something like that, then it's, it's very obvious you feel very cut off. But it turns out even in your good moments, you're sitting there in the meditation and you're feeling just the overwhelming harmony of being. And then you're aware that you are also the watcher. And you're like, what's the deal with that? I'm using the best possible experience to still separate myself a little bit. I must be an idiot. 
<laughs> right? So observing my active manipulation to create separateness uh, frees me from that process through the recognition of it, which is a yeah. little bit like a, an Adi Da kind of practice. It, it also makes me think of voice dialogue, uh, which is a psychotherapeutic um, technique where you split your personality up into lots of subpersonalities and you you inhabit those different subpersonalities and speak from the first person from those perspectives. But you have a cluster of primary selves, which are your default. You know, you might have three subpersonalities which rule your life. Um, and so what you're describing there is this, this like a primary self that f- feels this separation and will transform anything that comes into life into that feeling of separation and if you don't know that about the, the, this that you're doing that um there's no way out of it you know yeah. and, and uh, you and only see it in one area you feel trapped in that area because it's valid the thing about this manipulation mechanism is that it operates on valid things you go because this is a valid sensation therefore i get to separate myself because I'm having a valid emotion about that, therefore I get to separate myself, right? So it's it's dealing with valid parts of the world and exploiting them in this very perverse way. And if you just look at one way, like if you're caught in a situation where you feel very cut off or compressed, you're looking at the validity of that situation and go, well, the validity obviously justifies how I'm feeling. But as you start to see it across many different dimensions of your life, Right? If you sit there for a half an hour and wherever your attention goes, you find that you're doing the same thing, you get progressively disidentified with the particular valid justification and more and more aware of just the repetitive stupidity of the gesture that you're making in yourself. Mm. And then the other thing I do daily is I, I treat perception as a kind of food. And this is very important to me. And it's my on and off throughout the day work, which is I think higher parts of myself, so to speak, uh, feed on impressions if they are assimilated correctly. So that I'm always noting, oh, there's just all the perceptions I see inside myself and outside myself. And that's like food that I taste but don't really eat. And I have to pick one on purpose. I have to see its peculiarity. I have to let it impress me. I have to try to bring something out of my subtle or subconscious self that relates to it in a way that exceeds my immediate rational comprehension and then try to figure out how they work together. I have to feel it emotionally. I have to feel it in my sensations. So I take this time whenever I have the chance to consciously assimilate perceptions and the immediate effect of that in most cases is a general diffuse sense of uh intensified beingness okay could you like give a specific like you know a a concrete example of that okay so the other day i'm working on the deck and this little bird comes and lands in a tree in front of me. And I'm taking a little break because I've been, you know, trying to make sure I don't exhaust myself on this project. And the bird, it catches my attention. It stands out from my other perceptions. It's impressing me a little bit. I have an impression of it, so to speak. And I think, okay, it's giving me a feeling. 
I can't quite tell what the feeling is. I check my body. I check my emotions. I don't have an immediate idea about what it is. It just feels to me there's a little something more about this bird. And so now I'm excited because I'm, I'm expecting to work with this sense of something moreness. And so I start to think about this bird. I don't know if you know Genlin's focusing practice. No. But Genlin was a psychotherapist, and he had this thing where you would take your felt sense of a problem and you would experimentally think of words that went with it, and you would try to weigh them out. And if they didn't weigh out perfectly, you'd just try another one and try another one until they kind of clicked together. And then that was the correct articulation of your feeling for that moment. So it's something like that. I'll come up with, this bird makes me think of or feel, you know, just some random thing, because I don't want it to be locked into my... Um, waking conscious rationality. I'm looking for a more non-linear response. So yeah. I think this bird makes me think of taffy. And I'm like, no, that doesn't feel right. This bird makes me think of, I don't know, longshoreman. I'm like, no, that's not really right. I'm so I'm randomly going through things, asking other parts of myself to contribute. Uh, and then I thought, you know what this bird makes me think of that totally surprises me is the way that Russian spy women were presented in 1980s James Bond movies, particularly the Roger Moore films. And then I'm like, that's really weird because it feels I have no justification, which is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for no conscious justification. There's a click between these two pieces of information from different parts of myself. And I don't know why they click. So now I'm going to try to puzzle out why it works. And I'm already experiencing the kind of electrical current of having these two poles touch each other. So then I, you know, I try to think out what is there about this bird that makes me think that. Uh, and I spend a little time and I, I get to a place where I can kind of articulate something that is in common between the bird and uh, Russian spies from Roger Moore films. <laughs> right. And so it's a bit absurd in a way to do this practice, but at the end of the practice, boy, my whole body is buzzing, my whole body and heart and mind in a way that goes far beyond my normal somatic buzzing. Cool. That sounds a lot of fun. Um, so I think we've, we've kind of touched on, on the mind thing. You know, you could sum that up in a nutshell of just read stuff you find difficult. That's a big part of it. I think that's an excellent practice. Uh, another excellent practice is, for me, make diagrams. When you have an idea, try to get more clear about it. Try to tell people or try to draw it out. I do that all the time. If I, 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 keep, I come back to an impression, it's like I have almost a notion. I'm watching the news and I'm like, oh, I have a criticism of the news, say. And, and then I realize I've had that criticism before and I haven't quite articulated it. And I get out it's a piece of paper and I try to draw, do a schematic diagram of what I'm thinking. And then I look at the diagram and I have to adjust it a little. And then I can behold my own thought in structural clarity. And that takes me to the next step in my thought process on that topic. So I think that's really important is to create things that challenge you to clarify your thought and then re-examine that and assimilate it. That's mm. important. Uh, and the other thing is, just try, like try to answer questions, right? You know, there's, there's all these questions from other people and in politics and in science, you know, how does quantum physics and gravity fit together? Nobody knows. 
but why not have a go at it? You know, why not put the book down and spend 10 minutes seeing if you can come up with the answer? You probably can't, but it's worth it. Like have a go at intellectual problems. These other people who worked on them, the great philosophers and thinkers and scientists, they were just human beings like you, right? And most of their thoughts amounted to nothing. Sometimes they hit on gold. So go for it. Attempt a solution or an answer. If somebody asks you a difficult question, try to answer them. That's great. I love it. Um, what, what, so I'm, I'm aware that we've, you kind of wandered a little bit away from your story. Um, so I just want to try and tie it back in a bit with that. that are there, what are some of the mistakes you feel you've made along your path? And do you think you can help people avoid that or it are, is that inevitable? Yeah, that's tricky because whenever you reach a new understanding, it seems that you were making mistakes before, even if they led you to this understanding. When I was a kid, I was a huge fan of Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, and I, I got to meet him just before he died. And the thing that he said to me that really stood out was, the only way you know you're smarter is that you're constantly noticing how stupid you've been up until now. But that's the test. <laughs> so when you make an insight, yes, suddenly you retroactively realize you've been making a mistake, but that's also the mistake that led you to that insight. So it's, it's difficult to be dismissive of mistakes in that sense. However, a lot of things have changed for me over the years. Some is just human maturation. Um, but I definitely, I think, put too much focus on consciousness. I put too much focus on uh, the romantic feeling that I got from different sacred aspects of the universe. God or nature or the moon or teachings, they would give me this feeling that there was some amazing thing there. And I spent way too much time being involved in that feeling quality rather than pursuing my own path step by step. Uh, I think I was uh, very reluctant to feel responsible for things, to feel remorse, uh, reluctant to see the value in traditional theological terminology. What I see now is that there's a really interesting way to internalize guilt and sin and things and God uh, that means something to me as a human being that aren't just some kind of sociological trap. And learning to want to feel effort, learning to want to feel that I've been in error, uh, those are things that I rejected mostly unconsciously for a long time. And I think that's been one of the, one of the more beautiful shifts in my practice is learning to voluntarily want to feel that I've been in error. Hmm. Yeah, that's key. And that, that links back to what we were say, saying about being a good student is, um, you know, it, it almost kind of em embracing the errors and not trying to be too tidy. Um, but I, I think <clears throat> there, there are some stories of, you know, it's, I'm thinking of 
that one one thing that does keep cropping up again is going to certain teachers or purveyors of a particular path and um really becoming far giving too much of yourself over to um the the, these other people i mean you you strike me as as a very autonomous person i mean and um you know have you have you ever almost got sucked in to a particular school or yeah i don't know about sucked in i mean i've been more involved with some schools and teachers than others uh but i i've always been very i mean my error in a way was almost the other way that i was too individual too autonomous and i had to spend a lot of time on purpose trying to join things trying to conform now the result is it always turned out if you do that on purpose you always end up being more individual out the other side right you can't say i'm too individual i'm going to purposefully decide to do the experiment of joining a group you're going in with the context of making yourself even more individual because that's not why those other people are there necessarily so there's that thing in my nature that makes me like that for whatever reason um but i always i'm a big fan of swami rudrananda rudy and he was very focused on teaching students to think about why they're there what do you want from this don't adapt yourself to what you think the context of the teaching is you're not there to totally affirm another human being or to totally accept their worldview you're there for some other reason that's about you what do you need what do you want why are you here what are you trying to get from it and therefore what do you not care about right so i spent a lot of years in a buddhist community Right. And other people would always be like, you know, the teacher, he does these amazing things and these amazing things. But I don't know if we can really believe him on human relationships or his weird, paranoid future predictions. And none of that ever meant anything to me because I didn't care about that. I wasn't there to affirm everything that came out of his mouth. I was there to get his technical teachings and receive his energy transmission. Right. And even if it had turned out he was a child molester later that wouldn't have mattered in a sense morally it matters as a human being but if i'm there to receive his energy output that's what i'm there for i'm not endorsing every other thing about him i'm not endorsing his lifestyle or his views i'm there to get something for me and that's only clear if you ask yourself that question what am i here for why do i even want this ask yourself really basic questions about your involvement Uh, but there's also a, a self-esteem thing there, right? If you emotionally and intellectually and spiritually feel like you already have something that you're capable, then you, um, you, you, I don't want to say stand apart because you have to get really involved. You have to make real contact, but you don't make that contact in the sense of thinking that you're wrong and that person is right. And what you need to do is totally surrender to whatever you imagine they're asking you to do. You're there, you're there as an authentic being already. You're there to enter into a relationship, but it's only a relationship if you have some integrity in yourself already. Hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, so I, I think it, I feel it's important that you know we we you, you have your personal practice and then your it, 
plugged into some community of practitioners that you're kind of connecting around. And then the next step outside of that is, you know, the natural world, wider society. Um, so how, uh, how do you feel your practice connects with that, that bigger picture beyond yourself and the community? Well, let me, let me break as I think your original questions that you sent to me did. I'd break society and nature into two areas just for okay. convenience. Yeah. Um, nature is a huge part of my practice. I, I think of myself often more in shamanic rather than yogic terms. Um, touching the elements, being immersed in the elements, you know, being completely in water, being completely in a forest touching the things, nibbling the trees, smelling everything, getting a full sensory and largely subconscious input from what the ecosystem around you is doing. It's part of what I was saying earlier about the need for human systems inside and out to adapt to ecological patterns. I think that's a big part of where we are in history right now. So for me personally, you know, seeing what the crow is up to and nibbling the grass and touching the tree bark and watching the sun come up and breathing the air in different places. These are hugely important, I think, for physical health, but also for being spiritually keyed into the spiritual dimension of the biosphere, which is of huge historical importance. Um, as well as little, you know, the ritual elements of that. Nature always seems to invite you to exploration and improvised ritual which is where the shamanic traditions originated. Socially, a lot of it comes through politics, actually. I think um, trying to deepen and evolve and challenge my political perspectives and trying to look at what are the mobilizations of people that are analogous to individual spiritual practice, which is in a lot of ways the question of religion. If religion is the social analog of individual spirituality, how does that work, right? How do you, if you have to bring together heart, mind, and body in yourself, what are the equivalent subsystems that need to come together in order for a community or a nation to be healthy, to have peak experiences, to evolve? What are the sociological correlates of individual experience? That's a big part of it. And the mediator between those is a sense of um, historical civic faithfulness, I think. And that doesn't mean, you know, standard mythological patriotism or agreeing with everything your society is doing. It means that when you go into the streets, you feel that you are inheriting a goodness that there's a goodness in your civilization, that there's a goodness in human history, that there's a goodness in the rituals through which people interact with you. When, you. when someone catches your eye and you just give them a nod and they give you a nod back for no reason and then you go on your way, that that's a sacred thing. That there's a transcendental quality to the civic experience that teaches us where our politics need to go, but also how we need to behave with each other in general. Mm. And that that's the interpersonal analog of personal spiritual practice. It's, it's a little bit like that taking in the good practice where 
you know, no, notice what is functional in society. Um, what, you know, what is good, healthy, nourishing, connecting, genuine, authentic. Um, <clears throat> because it's so easy to, well, the, the, the news media is an exact reflection of that thing of focusing on negative stuff, you know, uh, that we're all hardwired to, uh, to do. And you know, <clears throat> if I, my Facebook feed, um, is, is very negative. A lot of it is complaining about things. And you know, they, they, I'm not saying that the things that people are complaining about shouldn't be complained about. There's lots of bad things going on, but it's, if, if you kind of, obsess about that then you're you're not actually you're not tasting and generating it's not coming this kind of goodness is not coming into you and it's not being brought back out of you you know it's just if you're just sucking in shit all day you're not going to be spurting out flowers i mean it's um it there's it takes quite a lot of effort to actually orientate your attention towards some of the good things you know I'm not, and i'm not saying forget the bad things you know we, we're not going to forget the bad things because we are hardwired to pay attention to that but it's um yeah there's there's so much beauty in in things that people think of as small and mundane and unimportant yeah there's i mean from the integral perspective we have these two you know, the inner and outer side of the social. So the inner side, the intersubjective experience depends on you tuning into what's really valuable with other people, right? And that's your relationships and your friends and things like that. But it's also your city, your culture, your history, what makes that beautiful and what actions cause that feeling to come forward more, right? Like, you know, obviously pick up a piece of trash, even if you don't have to but also mix with other groups of the society that you don't spend time with, whether it's racially or class or different kinds of things, right? The, the society has to be stirred around. If people can sequester themselves into different self-similar groups, it's like the electrical conductivity of the fluid fails. It's gotta be stirred up, right? And the times where we look back and our society really did well, like we kind of have this, nostalgic idea about how we did during the war, right? One of the things we did during the war that made us so great was everybody got involved and had to deal with types of people in the society that they normally would not have lunch with. And that that stirring up helps create a, a civic spirituality, a religiousness that is the analog of what happens when we mix and stir up our, our individual sub-functions, heart, mind, and body, for example. So that's the huge thing on the intersubjective front. But on the behavioral systems front, we have to figure out how to run a system in a way that benefits uh, health and balanced, multidimensional, qualitatively good spiritual lives, right? So that becomes a standard. You know, it doesn't matter what you think about healthcare in a sense, right? You should be thinking what kind of healthcare allows the most people to do the most balanced multidimensional spiritual practice, right? Should we have this or that economic program? Well, does it help people flourish in a multidimensional full spectrum way? Or does it skew the system and 
you know, put too much pressure on them or not enough pressure on them or take the resources that they need in order to have a stable spiritual life and pass it off to an international banking cabal or something like that, right? So this kind of life of balanced practice can become a standard by which we judge our approaches to social systems. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It makes me think of the, um, well, it's, it's kind of a fractal perspective, isn't it? You know, <clears throat> these macro systems, it, they, they seem so complicated um, and uh, compared to like an individual's life, but they do, they, they are a, a kind of fractal reflection of, of, of us as people. And, um, you know, in, in the fractal sense, thing, the, the next level on the fractal is, is similar. It's not identical but it's, it's, it's similar. It's got similar structures to it. And that's, it's quite, that's quite, a, I like the simplicity of, of that view that you've, you put there because, you know, when you look at the, you stand in the face and of, of these wicked problems or what are they? Hi, hyper objects. That's a, a, a term I've come across recently, which I really like. It's just, you're just like people that just go, ah, they just cannot get a purchase on it. But to make it kind of, yeah, to bring it down in, in that way, connect it in that way, I think is really, really nice. Um, <clears throat> so I, I feel, you know, we've covered everything that I, I was hoping we'd, we'd cover. And, and I've really loved this conversation. So rich. Just to finish, you know, before we sort of get to the point where you share where people can find out more about things you care about. Um, anything you want to say before we fit it, before we, we wrap it up in that way? Um, I think just that the life of practice, regardless of what your practices are, is it's such a beautiful thing. I just love it. it it's, so satisfying it's much more satisfying and pleasurable and empowering than the life of reacting to whatever's coming up and not only is it beautiful and and lovely and empowering but it also is like i mentioned earlier something i think is more necessary now than ever and there's a bunch of things that could have been considered luxury items in the past like among the ancient Taoists, the attempt to let go of names and labels and associative social reactions to what things are called and grouped, right? That's a, the Tao that can be named is not the Tao we're discussing. There's a, that was very luxurious. They didn't need to in the way that we need to now because now we are receiving 10 million bits of highly suggestive, highly dubious social information every day. There's a deluge. And we have to teach ourselves not to respond to it automatically. They, sort of, they didn't have as much coming at them. It was a bit more of a luxury. But we have a situation now where, you know, people who can't disengage from the emotional content of a tweet might kill themselves, right? So that it's like a, a survival necessity to teach even young children that what you see 
you don't believe immediately, that you do not have an immediate emotional reaction to what you perceive from the culture. You can't. It could destroy you. There's too much of it now. So there's an emergency, in a way, due to the overwhelm that our civilization has created, where things that used to be optional spiritual practice are now necessary survival skills. Hmm. Being embodied, going into nature, being more intentional in relationships like COVID, right? You can't, even if it goes, if it goes away, you can't hug like you used to hug, right? Human relationship has to be more intentional. Everything has to be more intentional in order to prepare us for possibly endless waves of mass chaos from now on. So it's, it's not only something I love, it's something I think at its root is absolutely necessary in order to have a prosperous rather than degenerative response to what the future is almost definitely going to consist of. Mm. Matt, it makes me think of, um, I haven't read the book, but I've seen the film, uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Do you know, do you know that story? Yeah, it's got uh, Viggo Mortensen. <clears throat> That's it. Yeah, and the the boy. I mean, they are living in the utter the utter chaos that we all fear, but the boy it keeps the fire alive, which is basically this this humanity and this love, um, and and he just he won't let go of that. And um, I mean, I can't articulate it uh, much. It had a deep emotional impact on me, and I and I feel like. These types of practice, uh, as you say, you know, it's 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 not a luxury. It, it's it's entire that that is the light, the fire that, it, in the case like this boy, we we can take with us into this chaos that potentially might be coming, and um, you know, through doing this, you can develop the strength to to and the the freedom around that inside yourself to not have it ripped away. Um, by, you know, or swept away with this t- of the tide of, of, of chaos. In a way, I mean, you could describe it as it's, it's you, you bringing your tiny little bit of order into the chaos, you know? It's like you're seeding a little bit of order into the yeah. chaos, yeah. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Um, so, you know, if people uh, want to, they think, wow, this guy, Layman's blowing my mind. Uh, I love all this stuff. Um, where can they find out more about what you do? This is the hardest question you've asked me because I have a very <laughs> uh, complicated relationship to information transmission. I, I used to write um, full books under various names, and then I moved to like extended articles and talks. Uh, but progressively, I've come to feel like I need to let that stuff all go and not even track it not put it all in one place, just scatter it around and people find it, they find it. Very often I'm engaged in community discussion on integral forums. Uh, And lately I've been doing a lot of these integral stage videos with my friend Bruce Alderman. Did a series on spiritual transmission, doing a series on podcasters who are coming from a higher perspective, participated in a lot of these videos. So if, if you look up Integral Stage on YouTube or Facebook, you'll find a lot of me. But, uh, you know, it's just I'm scattering it everywhere as much as I can and trying to let it all go. 
And the best thing you can do is find me somewhere and communicate with me because maybe I'll disagree with everything I've done until now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's cool. I, I thank you so much uh, for coming on and doing this. I really appreciate uh, you, you sharing your story and there's an enormous amount of wisdom. I, it's, uh, you're, you're obviously one of the most intelligent people I've met. <laughs> and this, this um, just uh, and uh, it goes. A lot of really intelligent people have this very good memory, and it's interesting. You you do comedy too, don't you? Mm-hmm. A lot of the people I know who do stand up com- have got incredible memories too, uh, which is uh, it's an interesting link that, that you know this the, the comedy intelligence and um, memory seem to. Yeah, well, to to track. To track patterns at a higher level, you have to be able to keep track of them. So you have to have a good memory. But there's also something about comedy that's close to philosophy, Mm. which is you have to have a really good memory and you also have to be able to critique something about the way we think that's in plain sight that we take for granted and undermine it somehow and move forward. Mm. I've only just become... uh, properly acquainted with bill hicks i mean i i knew about him my whole life but i I never really listened to him but now i have netflix uh i've been watching bill hicks and you know he's he is amazing and i i can't believe how young he was when he died i think he was 33 you know that is a wise person in a a very young young body and uh, he he's he's a real philosopher isn't he Bill Hicks, it seems to me, is one of the easiest philosophical comedians for the British to appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I never hear an American tell me how much they like Bill Hicks, but I've heard many English people tell me. (laughs) I I watched uh, I watched the the Bill Hicks story on Netflix and he, he was struggled for years and years and years in America just doing these shitty little clubs. He came to come to England and he was selling out massive auditoriums. Um, and th- there is some something definitely that that uh, the British he he appeals to the British sense of humor. The British sense of humor and the British um, tradition of intellectual and linguistic education, which is a little bit superior to many of the other countries in the world, right? That people come out of the British school system and they they can speak and think pretty well and know a lot about a lot of topics. And in order to get higher comedy, you need to have that capacity. You need to be good with language and flexible and fluid and have a little bit of that, you know, Irish irony and and a little bit of that imperial knowledge of all the things that are going on in the world. The British are very well set up to appreciate higher linguistic expressions of various kinds. Hmm. I'm sure a lot of, British people don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> but if you'd seen the North American school system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we anyway, uh, this is fantastic, Ralph. I'm having yeah. a really good time. We don't have to stop it right now. I just wanted yeah. to yeah. give a shout out about A, I love these topics and I love that mm. you're doing this project and I'm having a really good time. With yeah. You. Well it's um, you know, talking of uh going out of your comfort zone, not worrying about making mistakes, learning new stuff. This is all new for me. I've been learning about different software, different websites and podcasts and microphones and internet connections. And, you know, it's, uh, 
I've, I, my head's hurting sometimes, but I, I really, really love this. And for I've listened to podcasts and watched YouTube videos and stuff for so many years. I've been kind of on the outside of it. And something's really shifted in me the last couple of years where I, I, I want to contribute to this space. You know, now I don't want to be just passively in it. And uh, I had to get over quite a lot of um, my, you know, very British wanting to save face, you know, not make a fool of myself in public. Um, but uh, I love it. And it's so cool. And one of the things I, I one of the one of the, the sort of motivations for me to do this is to actually meet people, connect, have conversations. It's an excuse to do it. Um, and uh, and I think the COVID nineteen pandemic has pushed. I feel it's pushed culture and society to the next level of online life. Uh, you know, we, we wouldn't have done this without this crisis. Uh, you know, it would have happened eventually, but but it's been it's pushed people on to to doing this stuff. And I I think that's one of the sort of good things that's that's come out of this because it's a rich space and we 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 simultaneously live in meat space um but also in this incredible virtue the internet it's a play you know it's um it's the other side of our lives and and um you know you and i lived before the internet well i mean the internet's been around since you know before we were born but a user-friendly internet didn't exist when we were young and so we've experienced life where you just have the life inside your body and you know with the mind is subtle or all of those things but there's this whole other layer of our lives which has been added and it's absolutely fascinating and of course it's it's terribly dangerous in many ways but it's so liberating um at the same time and I, I, it's we are i feel like we're we're on some kind of fairground ride white knuckles holding on to this thing just like what is happening we're we're mutating as people uh and as a, a culture and society and it's 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 wonderful and terrible and awesome and all of it all in one it's it's a huge shift i mean you're right i I remember when you had to get your pornography from magazines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go, go into the shop. In our lifetime, yeah. this emergence of this, not only the technology itself, but the idea of the superlinked network in the back of our minds applied to everything, applied to nature, applied to society, this notion of superlinked communication networks. I think that sets the context for everything that comes next. And a big part of it is getting into this new kind of communication. Like I probably about a year ago, I mean, I would do maybe once a week, I would talk to somebody online and it started to become a couple days a week. And then I got involved in these projects where I was contributing or hosting to recordings. Um, and now I feel like everybody's joining me all of a sudden and it's fantastic. And I've been pushing Bruce Alderman for a while to you know, do a series about people who are doing this, which is how we talked mm. the other day. Because there's something about the medium itself and about the people who've adapted to the medium and about the potential we see in it, despite all of its dangers, that's not only beautiful, but charts the way forward. 
that I, mm-hmm. I personally realized I've been spending too much time talking to authors, too much time talking to public speakers and people with more old fashioned, elaborate notions. <laughs> and I don't think that's where the action is. I, I respect their work immensely, but the, the, the future of spirituality and humanism and transcendental practice, it's going to be in these um, more immediate, more natural, more amateurish, in a way, mutualized communication spaces everywhere on the planet. This is the new Sangha, in a yeah. way. Coming out of the ivory tower, so to speak. Yeah. Or the, or the, the, the cloisters, uh, the monastery. You know, it's um, we we live in the monastery now, um, and it, I it, it, I do feel a, a a civic duty and responsibility to be part of the commons. Um, I mean, I'm, part of me feels for for a lot a lot of my life, I wanted to be a hermit living in a cave um, in Tibet in the eighth century. You know. It's, I, I didn't want anything to do with with this modern life and and uh, global culture and society, um, but things have really really changed for me, um, and I I think you know there is a still a place for for the for the um, for those kind of recluse um, people to go into the depths of wherever they're going to bring out whatever jewels they're going to bring. But I, for, for, for they are a rare type of person really. And I think most other people, um, particularly spiritual practitioners, I really like Terry Patton. Um, his, his work is, is, is kind of going beyond this, this kind of navel gazing um, in, in, and actually actually connecting with with the, the world <clears throat> in all the ways you don't want to you know politically <laughs> like i hated politics for so much of my life you know and 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 i i i've i've just feel i've got to be involved in it now somehow you know and and stuff like that so it's i think it's it's really key and i think as, as you say in this new medium uh that's arising now is 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 getting people that it's it's bringing it into people's homes onto their phones into their hands you know it's just it's becoming part of people and it's pulling them pulling them out of themselves in a way even though at the same time people are probably spending more time at home sitting on their couch licking their phones <laughs> so yeah so is it, it we live in the age of paradox it's um it's overwhelming but it's incredibly full of potential and i mean we're just starting to learn the skills that we need in order to adapt to it right like and, and when we've learned those skills there'll be a whole new set of skills we need to <laughs> yes exactly now that's i mean that's another topic entirely i mentioned yeah. it a little bit you know the the waves of ambiguity and overwhelm i think are going to come faster and faster yeah it's, it's not like we're gonna there was an odd situation this year and we're going to get back to normal Odd mm. situations at a mass level have been coming more often. And because there's so much more interconnection and instability and communication, we're going to see more of them at that level more often. Yeah. And we have to be prepared for that ambiguity, which could be traumatic if we're not ready, 
but could be liberating if we are ready. Part of being ready is being flexible, and part of being ready is really being grounded in your own life of self-supporting practices so that you have a secure position from which to engage it from. Yeah, and I, I think, um, and, and ultimately, we have to be able to just let go of the whole thing because the the ultimate catastrophe may be on the cards you know and we have to have the emotional psychological spiritual maturity to actually let that possibility in and be able to let go of having to make the result be the way we want it um and i think once once you've you once you've been able to let go that deeply then i mean it, it, it makes me think of the sort of the martial arts state or the Zen of archery and things like that, you know, once you've truly let go at that level, then you can really begin to do the work uh, in a way where you're not clinging to the results. You're just bringing that, that fire and heart into it. um, You you know, with an open, with an open mind. Um, I don't know whether that even makes sense, but I I think so because you have to, I mean, first of all, you have to assimilate the boundaries of the situation you're in, which means accepting failure, accepting mystery, accepting maybe it's not going to work. But that's what should give you the power to engage in the struggle, right? It's that way, like, there's a lot of things that, whatever we want to call it, progressive politics or the, the need to really upgrade the social and technological and economic systems that we live in. They need to be changed quickly at a big scale and that's a huge fight and most of the time you're going to lose that fight right (laughs) most elections aren't going to turn out the way you want it Mm. most efforts are going to fail but that has to be okay that has to be the reason to keep fighting yeah not a reason to feel apathetic and back off Mm. and at the same time that's another reason for spiritual and religious practice in the broadest sense is that you need you need some kind of personal contentment and some kind of extra energy to motivate that if the whole world needs to change and we all kind of know the changes then the problem is we don't have enough motivation or coordination to enact those changes Mm. and motivating energy and coordinating energy is what we're talking about that's the religious and spiritual life yeah that's where everything comes together into some sort of transcendental apex that moves you and um you know we we can sum that up with the one word integration you know which is what this is all about you know and and how you and i met and all of that through this this one concept of integration yeah maybe we should maybe we should leave it there but that uh, what a what a wonderful conversation uh layman i think thank you so much and um i look forward to um you know keeping in touch through whatever means facebook and youtube and blah 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 all of those good ways and absolutely uh, i could do yeah. six more hours <laughs> <laughs> good to talk to you ralph yeah. this was fantastic you too thank you so much layman cheers man